Welcome to NCAGT's podcast. Our mission is to dismantle the they'll be fine myth that often surrounds gifted learners. Our goal is to address the excellence gap faced by high ability students, including those from diverse backgrounds. Join us as we advocate for gifted and talented scholars to unlock their full potential. Please note the ideas and thoughts shared here are as diverse as our guests, not always reflecting the official NCAGT stance. So keep an open mind and let's explore a variety of perspectives together. Welcome back to another episode of They'll Be Fine, the podcast where we explore stories of resilience, growth, and triumph. I'm your host, Hannah Park, and today we have not one, but two incredible guests. First up, we have Dr. Katya Fredrickson, a distinguished clinical psychologist with a fascinating background. From her early days in the Washington, D.C. metro area to studying and working in Norway and New Zealand, Dr. Fredrickson's journey has been as diverse as her areas of expertise. Her research on health behaviors encompassing sleep and substance use and her extensive work with children, adolescents, and adults have made a significant impact. We're eager to delve into her experiences and insights. And joining us alongside Dr. Fredrickson is Dr. Yale Rothman, a pediatric neuropsychologist hailing from Michigan. Dr. Rothman's academic journey from the University of Michigan to research in the United Kingdom and teaching in New York has been a testament to her commitment to understanding neurodevelopmental disorders. Currently working in Maryland, Dr. Rothman specializes in comprehensive evaluations for a wide range of conditions impacting learning, behavior, and social-emotional functioning. Both of our guests today have not only contributed extensively to clinical research, but have also been active in sharing their knowledge through presentations at national and international conferences, publishing articles and peer-reviewed journals, and lecturing to parents and educators. But that's not all. These two have co-authored a book titled Different Thinkers ADHD. This comprehensive resource provides invaluable insights for both children and adults, offering practical advice for managing symptoms and reflection prompts designed to help readers understand what it means to be a different thinker. One of the reviews of the book says, if your child has ADHD and you're looking for a way to help them understand why they excel at some activities and struggle with others, this book is essential reading. Presented in a highly entertaining graphic format, this book offers parents and children an easy to understand, balanced view of different thinking. In this book, Dr. Rothman and Dr. Fredrickson hope to empower children to understand their ADHD diagnosis and more importantly, celebrate their unique way of thinking. So without further ado, let's jump into this enriching conversation with Dr. Fredrickson and Dr. Rothman. Welcome to They'll Be Fine. The first question I have for you guys is what, well, how would you describe or define ADHD and how is it diagnosed? Sure. Um, so ADHD uh, is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. People out there may be aware that there are three different subtypes of ADHD, or maybe you aren't aware of this, but there is ADHD predominantly in attentive presentation, which means just uh, attention challenges. Sometimes people call that ADD, but that's not actually the clinical diagnosis. 
There's a predominantly hyperactive impulsive presentation, which is more rare where you just have the hyperactivity and impulsivity, but not the attention problems. And then combined presentations where you present with both inattention and hyperactivity impulsivity. So when we think about the diagnosis, there are these two sets of symptoms, the inattention and then the challenges with inhibitory control or the hyperactivity impulsivity. And to meet criteria, you need a clinically significant number of these symptoms. There's nine in each category and you need um, more than six, six or more. And you have to see them across settings. If we work with a family where the child only presents with symptoms at home, only presents with symptoms at school, only presents with grandma or whatever it might be, that's not a diagnosis. We need to see some symptom presentation in different settings. And um, that's why we try to talk to different providers, talk to school, and also see uh, individual in our office as well. To get a diagnosis that can be made by many different professionals. You could go to your pediatrician and they could fill out questionnaires. I'm sorry, you could fill out questionnaires as a parent, and then they probably will submit some to school to get the understanding of what a, a teacher would be experiencing with the child. Psychologists could diagnose. People like Katya and I, a neuropsychologist can give a diagnosis, psychiatrists. So multiple different professionals could come to that diagnosis. Well, and, and you two have written um, a book for children, a children's book, but also for adults, because I, I was reading it. And as I was reading it, I was thinking about how much I love the images in it, but I also love the way that you guys provided list in the story. And then you have areas for reflection for them to actually write on the pages. I just feel like kids are really going to be able to see themselves in this story. And as I was reading it, because I I was diagnosed with ADHD later on in life, mm. um, which I definitely can't wait to talk to you guys about ADHD not being diagnosed in girls, because mm -hmm. that I've lived that, and I just even as an adult myself, I I just see myself in this story, and I think it's so important that when kids read stories, that they are able to see themselves in the story. And this is very um, very diverse and inclusive, and I love that. I love 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 it. Um, but since we have an understanding of what ADHD is and its diagnosis, let's explore why it's crucial for children to comprehend their ADHD diagnosis, because as a teacher, I've seen so many families not want their children to know, and I've seen so many parents be afraid of labels. So I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about that. Right. Well, thank you for the feedback about the book. Um, and just quickly about um, the point you made about children being able to see themselves. I mean, that was sort of the, why we put in the three different vignettes, right? To sort of present different ways in which the diagnosis can manifest because it's that old um, saying, if you've met one person, you've met one person, right? I mean, it looks so different in different people. Um, and the and diversity of the ethnic and racial backgrounds of the characters. And we thank our illustrator so much. I think that she really created some beautiful illustrations. Yeah, she nailed it. It's great. Yeah, since all I can do is stick figures, I am super, super, <laughs> <laughs> literally stick figures. Um, <laughs> um, and then you were asking about, sorry, I, I went off track a little bit there because I wanted to um, say something about what you had mentioned previously. Um, and now I've totally lost my train of thought. About um, uh, the importance of children knowing right. about the Thank you. Thank you. A relevant point. Um, so 
Yeah, it, 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 we hear this a lot, this fear about the quote unquote, the labeling, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I hear that. I mean, we we have kids, like we understand that desire to protect your child from something that parents are sort of feel threatened by or scared of or unsure of or whatever it is, right? I, I, I understand that feeling. But what we always sort of say to people is, um, you know, kids tend to be more savvy they notice more things than we are aware of and they may have noticed sorts of areas of difficulty and they may not know what to call them or how to define them or what they mean and unfortunately sort of a just an aspect of human nature is we're quick to sort of make negative assumptions right and so kids are quick to oftentimes generate negative self-attributions as opposed to you know I'm having trouble keeping up with my schoolwork because I have ADHD. It's I'm having trouble because I'm stupid or it's, you know, it's something sort of terrible like that. And we do hear that a fair amount in our office. And we do hear parents coming in and reporting that their kids are having these thoughts and saying these things. And so we'd much rather, if we do have an accurate and developmentally appropriate and kind label that can help them understand the issues, we would much, much rather apply that than leave the children floundering, trying to assign a label themselves, which will invariably be a negative one. Um, And so that's a strong reason why we want to share this information with children. Um, Just this idea that there's a reason why they're needing to work harder. um, And it's not a a negative character trait or something of that nature. It's just because brains are different and their brain needs to, you know, to work a little harder to do certain things. Right. We also have seen And maybe this happened in your experience, getting a diagnosis later in life where parents have hid some of this from a child because they were concerned about a label and then finding out it's 16, 17, 18, oh, actually you've had this diagnosis all along. And it's not necessarily like an identity crisis, but it is like you you miss something about yourself. Like you always knew something was going on and it must, the adolescents that have worked with us have talked about the frustration there. Like, oh, that could have just explained everything for me and how how tough that is. We We also really think it's important for kids to understand their brains to become their best self-advocates. That's really a goal with this book is for the child eventually to say, hey, here's what works for me, teacher, or whoever it might be, and um, and learn about how they can function and learn best, um, because there's so many beautiful ways to do that. I love that. And I just, I think it's so important that kids understand we all have our strengths and we all have our weaknesses. And just because we do have weaknesses, that it's it's not a terrible thing. But if you can understand them, then you can know how to put yourself in better positions. And I think it's so important for kids to learn that, especially once they transition from elementary to middle school, if they have, they can kind of reclaim that power and they can say, because I just remember feeling this sense of relief when I found out, I was just like, oh my goodness, like, it's just an answer. So you can kind of reclaim that power and I'm not broken. There's nothing wrong with me. I just, Mm -hmm. you know, I've got struggles and everyone does, but I I just love that. So thank you for highlighting the importance of awareness. We're going to push the pause button for just a second to share some really exciting news. NCAGT's annual conference is heading to Greensboro, North Carolina on March 14th and 15th, 2024. This is an event you won't want to miss. 
For the latest updates on registration, keynotes, and all the things conference-related, head over to ncagt.org. And here's the best part. If you have a burning question or need more information, we've got you covered. Just shoot us an email at conference at ncagt.org. All right, let's get back to it. Um, so the potential to underdiagnose ADHD in girls, that mm-hmm. is a real thing, right? That's happening. For sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. Why do you think that is? We know that um, in many cases, when it comes to developmental conditions, psychiatric conditions, medical conditions, women and men present differently, right? And that's not something that has been necessarily acknowledged until more recent years, right? For example, when people began to do research on women when it came to heart disease and how that presents differently from, you know, so that sort of thing. It's the same with autism. It's the same with ADHD. It's the same with all kinds of things. And so a lot of the early research on ADHD was done on males. Um, And um, the fact of the matter is that males and females often present differently. Now, does that happen all the time? No, but often there's a difference in presentation where girls are more likely to fall in that inattentive subtype that Yael was talking about before. Whereas with boys, you may be more likely to see that more combined subtype where you're seeing all of the above when it comes to the the three diagnostic sort of criteria. And so early um, sort of uh, thought processes around the diagnosis focused more on that inhibitory aspect, which is oftentimes less prominent for girls. And so your girl with ADHD is very often, right, maybe a little on the anxious side, quieter, maybe sitting in the corner of the classroom and just daydreaming and zoned out. And and in the context of a larger classroom setting, it's very hard for a teacher, no matter how competent or or well-intentioned they are, to notice that, right? Because it's, it's just more subtle, they're going to pick up on somebody who's more impulsive, who's more hyperactive, but somebody who's just sort of sitting there daydreaming, it's very, very hard to notice, especially in the, I would say in the earlier grades, um, before the rubber meets the road academically as much when kids can sort of, I think, get by better just based on their natural talents and sort of raw materials, so to speak. And that's, I think, part of the reason why uh, we've been missing diagnosis in girls over time and why that's sort of come to the fore now in terms of just research and just public information. And there's just more out there about that now than there ever was. Yeah. If you look at the statistics, boys are diagnosed with ADHD almost two times as often as girls, but research is suggesting that ADHD affects boys and girls the same at the similar rates. So this really is what's happening is the flying under the radar. And what often happens with us is the adolescent girls will come, the adolescent teen, the young women will come to our office and get a diagnosis later because that is when everything becomes more executively demanding. Well, in regards to medicine, is there any truth behind, I've heard people say that a lot of the ADHD medication studies are done on on boys and men and that it's not studied like it should be with women and females? Is that, is there any truth behind that? Well, if you think about just the stats in general, if twice as many males are diagnosed than females, then the studies are all going to include a skew, right? Uh, on um, With uh, males with ADHD. I, I can't say that I know of any studies that did not include females, but I imagine that uh, that same challenge is applying that these females are not being included there. 
Katya, would you say anything different there? No, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. I don't know. I, I have not heard anything about there being any sort of differences in the findings for males and females in regards to the utility or effectiveness of medication. But what you're saying makes perfect sense in terms of the likelihood that there may be a skew in terms of the um, gender of the research population. That does make sense. Well, it's definitely eye-opening to just understand the gender dynamics in ADHD diagnosis. So when we think about the crucial role that caregivers have, how can parents and educators best support and guide a child through the diagnosis process? So are, are you thinking in terms of sort of speaking with the child about diagnosis? Or are you thinking more about like strategies to put in place or all of the above? Well, I actually had a friend message me this morning and ask me, she said, um, I've got a parent that wants to know how to support their child with ADHD in the morning. They're really struggling getting ready to go to school. Um, and I said, and I'm curious to hear what you think about the suggestions I gave, but I suggested that, um, they pull out outfits and, and get everything packed up the night before. So to relieve that stress and anxiety in the morning, to use a visual schedule with pictures on it. Um, when the language that they use, when they say, instead of, you know, get ready for school or to be more specific, get dressed, brush your teeth, then come downstairs. Um, using that language and then using timers can be helpful, but they said that the timers weren't working well for them because it caused just a lot of anxiety within the child. I I think those are all great ideas and the kinds of things we talk to clients about all the time. So in terms of, right, the use of the visuals, because you can't necessarily expect that your child with ADHD is going to be as able to take in a lot of verbal prompts and instructions especially if they're multi-step, right? So the use of the visuals, the preparation ahead of time. I hear you about the outfit. That is, a <laughs> you, hear, you hear parents will come in and they'll tell you about their kid who's in private school and they'll say, and the best thing is that there's a uniform. And so we don't have to have this debate about the stress about the outfit every day. Yeah, and packing the bag ahead of time too, right? Packing the bag the night before, having a checklist of, um, you know, did I pack this, 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 and that, you know, that sort of thing, I think can be very helpful. We want to ensure we have enough time in the morning. So my, my older one is starting at middle school next year and school's going to start. I mean, she's going to have to be there literally like over an hour before she is now arriving at elementary school. So I'm already starting to think about, wow, it's a shift. I know they have to be there. It starts at 745 and right now her school starts at nine. So, oh, wow. Wow. It's such the opposite of what we need for our kids. I know, I know. She's she's starting as she gets older to sleep in later. And so it's exact opposite. I mean, yeah. Anyway, so I've just been starting to think about, well, how much earlier are we going to have to get up in the morning and just, um, you know, because that morning's that morning rush can be so stressful, especially when a parent needs to get out the door at a certain time, or when there's this another sibling who's more sort of organized and then gets frustrated with the sibling who's lagging. But I, it's such a minefield, I feel like. And so the more we can do exactly as you said, I mean, to prep ahead of time and to set up visuals, I think the better. And then as we think about when we get up, we want to think about when we go to bed, right? So it all cycles back to the previous night to ensure that the child's getting enough sleep because we know that sleep has such an effect on how ADHD symptoms manifest as well, right? So we want to ensure the child's getting enough sleep. And so if we're going to get them up a bit earlier, maybe they need to go to bed a bit earlier. That's another piece I've been thinking about with the middle school transition, right? So those are the sorts of things I'd have in mind. And then also to the extent possible, I mean, because we're human beings, right? (laughs) As parents, we're human beings and it's frustrating, Um, especially when that sort of thing happens again and again and again, it's frustrating. 
Um, but just um, trying, trying, trying insofar as we can to hold on to the fact that this is just literally di more difficult for this kid. They're not trying to throw off the morning. They're not trying to annoy other people. In fact, they'd probably much rather be better at this and not annoy other people, right? And not disrupt the morning schedule. And so just trying as much as we can to try to be as tolerant and patient as possible, even though that can be difficult. I mean, again, when these sorts of things are happening every day. But I just think it also depends on the child too, because it looks so different and so many different in children. Um, she was saying that the mom had tried putting on music and was like, when the song changes, you need to move on to the next thing on your list. And I was like, that sounds like a good idea, but I could see myself not even realizing that the song had changed. You know what I mean? Because my brain would just get tracked somewhere else and I just wouldn't even realize the shift. Um, but that might work well for some people. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of trial and error, I think, right? Yes. And consistency. I think consistency is so important. Just the routine and the schedule is right. huge. For sure. And that's a lot for the parent to own. The parent has to own a lot of that. Uh, yeah. And again, the idea of the parents trying to get themselves ready. Or <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've just found myself getting up earlier in the morning to accommodate. Well, and, and okay. also that ADHD runs in families. So parents may also exhibit these symptoms themselves. Mm -hmm. right. So that can be a complicated, a complicating factor is I can't do this for myself. How am I doing it for my child? And that's when you enlist some support and some help. This isn't necessarily intuitive all the time. Getting some guidance can be really helpful and important. And um, part, uh, at the end of our book, what we also comment on are some tips of like how to go through this as a parent caregiver with a child. And the first is to really get comfortable with all of the understanding of this diagnosis and and maybe that means how does it manifest in you a little bit as well is that uh, uh um, a confounding factor here and learning when to ask for help when you need it maybe I don't know how to create visual schedules or whatever it might be I'm disorganized or whatever I is going on and how do I get some help here how do I get some guidance DFEQ is proud to partner with NCAGT for the 49th Annual Gifted Education Conference, Building the Future Together. Are you an educator seeking to leverage authentic learning insights to better meet the needs of your students? Looking to target your teaching practices, but unsure where to start or how to identify opportunities across learners? DFEQ wants to support your journey. Sign up for free access at DFEQmetrics.com. See you in Greensboro, March 14th through 15th. Do you guys particularly like the term ADHD? Do you feel like it's fitting or would you prefer to call it something else? Ooh, that's an interesting question. You know what I don't like? I personally, I don't like the deficit word, right? Mm -hmm. Attention deficit. Because A, it's obviously... We talk about this a lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Obviously, it sounds pretty unpleasant and pejorative, right? But also, um, again, I'm going to like get on my, my broken record here. Again... I think it should be more of like an attention dysregulation as opposed to deficit um, in terms of how we refer to it, because really what we're, because deficit is a complete um, misnomer. The people with ADHD can pay attention great <laughs> if it's something that is interesting to them. They're stimulated by it. It's in their wheelhouse. Like very often you hear parents talk about, 
oh, well, so-and-so can build Legos for hours or play video games or read their favorite book or whatever it is. The idea is, again, this dysregulation such that when the child or adult or whoever it is is confronted with something that is perceived as boring or overly challenging or stressful, then it's so much more difficult to implement those same skills you see when it's more of a preferred activity. So that would be the main thing I would call out. That's such an interesting question. No one's asked me that before. And it's but. also one of the most common misconceptions that parents bring to us is because of that term, right? The deficit. Right. Like my child can't have ADHD because they can sit in front of a video game for six hours without moving or using the bathroom or whatever it might be. And I, it's that word. It's the attention deficit. I think that people see that and they're like, oh, then that's not what ADHD is. And yeah, I think. That and, would... and people who have more of the inattentive type always react to the H in there, right? Sure. So, yes, yes, yes. They're like clued into the idea, well, there are subtypes and there is the predominantly inattentive type. Unless they're clued into that, they see that H and they're like, what? I'm not hyperactive. I can't or... have ADHD. I'm not hyperactive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there's definitely some confusing elements to the name. Uh, do you feel like um, ADHD is overdiagnosed in children? I think that's hard to say. I mean, we can only, professionally speaking, we can speak to our own competence, but maybe not like the broader field, if that makes sense. Certainly the rates of diagnosis have grown over time. Um, and there are good reasons for that. For example, people are just more aware. There's less stigma. And so I think that that opens the doors more to the flow of information. And also, um, like we were saying before, we're maybe getting better at catching it in more subtle populations, such as the inattentive girls we were talking about. And so that leads to a rise in the rate of diagnosis. Um, there are just so many things you need to be careful about when you diagnose to ensure that um, you are being crossing your T's and dotting your I's right? You need to see it in the multiple settings. You need to be sure it's um, outside the realm of what's developmentally appropriate. Like when you're looking at a kid in kindergarten, first grade, you just want to look really carefully to be sure that what you're seeing and what the teacher and parents are describing is outside the realm of what you would expect. You know, I'm sure there are cases where it's diagnosed inappropriately, um, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the rates are for that or how we would know. What do you think, Dr. Rothman? You I, I, I'm along the same lines. I think that we are evidence-based practitioners. We look to the diagnostic criteria to be very specific and, and confirm, confirm a diagnosis based off of that. Could there be professionals who see uh, less symptoms and give a diagnosis? Sure. I think that can happen in a lot of different fields. I do think that our population that comes to us for testing there's a high rate of ADHD because we are seeing a neurodivergent population. Most people don't come to get a neuropsychological evaluation unless they have a question of something going on with their learning and their thinking or their emotional, social functioning. So we definitely see a much higher proportion than the general population, but we also have the expertise to support them. But I've heard people say, I've heard several several people say that, oh, everybody's a little ADHD. Everyone's got a little ADHD. And what would you say to someone who says that? Don't, it's so fascinating that. <laughs> when that happens, right? Because you hear that with so many different things. Oh, I'm a little OCD. I'm a little ADHD. I'm a little on the spectrum. And I don't want to take that away from people, but it does remove the 
understanding of neurodiversity and a neurodivergent brain and a different thinker from the actual person who's experiencing those symptoms. If I opened up our diagnostic manual, our, our DSM right now, I'm sure we all will have one symptom of every single thing that's in most things that are inside that manual. Does that mean that you have the diagnosis, the functional impairment, the challenges that go along? A hundred percent not. What's fascinating about our field, at least to me, I'm sure Katya thinks this too, and that's why we went into it, is that we are looking at how a typical uh, way of thinking or a, a certain thought process changes. So everyone has an attention sometimes. So that's our typical way of human functioning. And then you see what happens when it becomes that you are just not available during these non-preferred tasks. So yeah, we all sit through a boring lecture and are bored and maybe tune in and out and daydream a little bit. But then there's the person who really cannot take in any of that information during that time period. And that's where the functional impairment lies, right? So I think that's what's important and, and fascinating about our field. Again, that's we all experience this, and then there's the divergence there. Would you add to that, Katya? No, I think that makes perfect sense. It's hard because on the one hand, you're pleased that people have exposure to the terminology and are comfortable using yeah. it, right? Yeah. I mean, 30 years ago, I bet people weren't going around saying, oh, I'm a little bit autistic or I'm a little bit, you know, like we've moved so far in terms of people's true, true. Right. So there's that. But then on the other hand, you don't want to invalidate the experience of the person who has the genuine article, the full on diagnosis. Because again, yeah, I was saying the uh, basic criterion for, I think, every diagnosis in the in our diagnostic manual is that there's some degree of functional impairment. It gets in the person's way in some important way in their life, school, work, relationships, whatever. Um, and so you know, saying I have a little bit of this uh, seems a little flippant. I don't, so it's sort of, it, I feel, I feel sort of caught in the middle here, but overall, I, I just worry that it detracts from the experience of people who sort of have, um, you know, the genuine article. And I mean, nobody goes around saying I'm a little bit diabetic or I'm a little bit, you know, right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and I've had a lot of parents walk through my doors over the years, and um, some have been very receptive when I've reached out with concerns saying, hey, like you might want to talk to your pediatrician about this. I'm noticing this at school, and some are very receptive. Others are absolutely not. Some of it is culture-based. They just, it, it doesn't, it's just not allowed to happen. But what is your stance on medicine, specifically in children? Because so many parents have a lot of fear with medicine. So where do you guys kind of stand on that? So uh, just to clarify, we're not medical doctors. So we have PhDs, not MDs. So just to go from that standpoint, but we are evidence-based practitioners who look to research to make our treatment recommendations. And the research would show that the first line of treatment for ADHD is a class of medications called stimulant medications and that they're very strong uh, interventions for individuals who have moderate to severe presentation of these symptoms. And that's according to huge, gigantic research projects that have gone on for um, many, many years that people could look into. Now, 
having fear about your child going and taking a medication is so understandable. And I think that's where we give information and understanding. And then we say, and now we want you to talk to your medical provider and make sure that this is an appropriate intervention for your child, for you, and that we're all on the same page. I always talk about how as a psychologist, I'd love to say that I can serve you and help you and do it all. But the research would show otherwise that a behavioral intervention is not as strong as a medical intervention um, for an individual with ADHD. What would you like to add to that, Katya? No, I mean, I use different sorts of wording, but it's the exact same message. <laughs> so not, you said it's a completely understandable for a parent to question these things. And I would say, I would add on to that and say, it's not only understandable, it's appropriate. I mean, we need yes, to- they do. Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah, we need to be cautious about this stuff. And certainly there have been periods of time, um, you know, where- in our field where things have been overdiagnosed and heavy duty medications have been, there was the whole sort of bipolar when bipolar was being diagnosed and quite young children, heavy duty medications being put in place whenever that was like 20 years ago, or I, I don't remember. We certainly need to exercise caution and not everybody out there is following the strict dictates of diagnosis. Um, and so, yeah, it's a pro it's a hundred percent appropriate to be, um, to be cautious and you want to do your due diligence and educate yourself and see, um, you know, talk to us, talk to your pediatrician, do some research online at a reputable site, buy a book. There's lots of different, uh, you do just want to feel comfortable as you make that sort of decision because it is a big decision. But again, there's a lot of research out there indicating that this is an appropriate first tier intervention. And that's not the case for other things. So like for anxiety, for example, the first tier recommendation is cognitive behavioral therapy. And then if that doesn't work, then maybe you move on to medicate, right? So it's not just that people are out there recommending that you medicate your child willy-nilly. It really depends on what the presenting issue is. And again, the severity of it. And then you think about the pros and the cons, right? So um, there comes a point where the, at my, my personal, well, not personal, but professional barometer is I always encourage parents to think about three things. I encourage them to think about Number one, are the symptoms in question affecting their child academically, right? So have we hit the point where, you know, um, little Jimmy cannot just get by on, on um, hard work and determination and intelligence, but really that ADHD is getting in the way, right? Um, have we, um, are the symptoms in question affecting the child socially, right? So is your child having that ADHD manifestation where it's, we've got the pushy, the shovey, the personal space, the the poking, the joking, the stuff that is not necessarily being well-received by other kids, and they're starting to, to feel excluded or rejected or whatever it is. And then last of all, are the symptoms in question affecting them emotionally? And that sort of dovetails <laughs> along with the academic and the social, but are you starting to hear those negative self-attributions? And so those are, those are sort of guidelines that I advise parents to consider as they're thinking about this process. I love that. That's great. Yeah. Absolutely. You guys have, you've both shared so much. Uh, before we wrap up, I do have a final question that I would like to ask you guys, but before I get to that, are there any final thoughts, recommendations, anything at all that you'd like to share? Um, well, we really believe that it's important for children to, and adolescents and beyond to understand how they think and learn. And if there are questions about this to ask for help, ask professionals, look into this further. If you're a parent and you have a question about your child's 
social, emotional, behavioral learning, cognitive functioning, please ask. Just ask some your doctor. You can start with your pediatrician and just ask questions to see how, if there's other things you should explore. We hope that the book that we've written is going to support this understanding that we all have strengths and challenges and that having a different thinking brain does not make you bad, wrong, or abnormal. It actually can be a gift at times. Um, Different thinkers are the people who move our world forward. So we hope that we can reduce stigma here as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all those points. And I, I think um, in regard- I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That'd be pretty unfortunate. Actually, I disagree with what you said. <laughs> I was just going to piggyback on what you said about the whole, if you have questions, try to find someone to ask them to. Um, I think a lot of parents, and I've been guilty of this with my own kids, There, you, you fall into this comfortable, well, let's just wait and see kind of approach, you know, wait and see, wait and see. And it feels so much more reassuring. Oh, I'm sure, you know, he'll, she or whoever will grow out of it and I'll just wait and see. And and that can be dangerous because it's a slippery slope and you can look up a couple, put your head up a couple of years later and be like, oh my gosh, I'm still waiting and seeing. And <laughs> so I think what I've said sometimes to parents who are coming in for a consult, like, well, should we have an evaluation? Shouldn't we? Should we bark up this tree or should we just wait yeah, wait and see? I always say, well, set a deadline on it. Like set, okay, it is, it's, I was about to say it's January. Haha, it's February right now. And I'm anxious <laughs> to my child. I'm going to wait until um, May or something. I'm going to give this three months and I'm going to just put it on the back burner and let it simmer away in my subconscious there. And then I'm going to check in. I'm going to set a calendar reminder. And in three months, I'm going to sit down with myself and go through all these pieces and things that I was concerned about. And am I still concerned about them? Right. And I've done that with my own kids. And there have been times when the concern has gone away and times when it hasn't. And then that sort of gives you, I just think you need to set a deadline because otherwise it's just, we're so busy and so overwhelmed by our lives in general. It's so easy, just the time fritters away. And then sometimes we have kids coming in to see us and you sort of, you wish the parents had brought them in years before. So that's one piece I would think about. And then another piece is just, just remembering the dangers of the negative labels kids put on themselves. And it's so much, so much more protective for them and so much more productive if we can find the right one, if, if, if one is warranted, right. And share it with them and, and sort of, you know, here's what we know about people with ADHD or whatever it is, and here's what can be done to help these things. And I think that's so reassuring and provides so much hope for kids. Uh, it's very important. Well, I, I'd want to plug your book one more time again, it's called different thinkers, ADHD. And I just feel like we're, um, it's so easy to get a lot of information, a lot of sources out there, especially if you get on TikTok, there's all these people that are preaching and aren't necessarily qualified. Um, and so this is a bona fide book that people can use in a safe way to talk to their children about ADHD and their diagnosis and really empower them to make sense of their experiences and foster that self-awareness and provide them with the foundation that they need to be able to build effective coping strategies. So thank you both so much for writing this story. I can't wait thank to share so it with my kids. Oh, yay. Thanks for having us. And thank yeah. you. Yeah. Well, we and I know that I've, there's a lot of information out there, and we hope that people find their way to the correct evidence based information. We also started an Instagram account at Neuropsych Mom Docs to try to also provide evidence based information out there as well. Are you guys on Facebook at all? Like have a Facebook group for this stuff? Because I know that's where a lot of parents will go to for for resources. 
that it needs to be our next endeavor. We will. Yeah. Do a Facebook yeah. group. Yeah. We have a list. Well, and, <laughs> and I have to ask you this question. We didn't really talk a lot about um, gifted education today, but that's kind of. Yes our podcast and our organization. Um, So a lot of times the term giftedness causes a lot of divide. Some people um, think that it can lead to misconceptions and even prevent students from being identified because they don't check these preconceived boxes. So do you agree with the term gifted? Do you think that it's problematic? And if you could rename it, what would you Mm. rename it? That's an interesting piece. I I don't know if I have a completely negative impression of the term gifted. I think the concern that I was thinking about is how with ADHD versus giftedness and the misdiagnoses that could come along is this child and the misperception that someone who's gifted doesn't have other challenges that could go along with it, like learning issues, ADHD. Yes. I think those are the pieces that I'm probably more aware of and concerned of um, and to, to make sure that people don't have tunnel vision. Oh, this child is so well uh, above grade level in reading math, whatever, that they're, they're just bored in class versus, oh, they actually have significant clinical inattention that is pervasive, not just because of right. their high intellect. Yeah. Katya, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, parents will sometimes come in and tell us so-and-so is bored in class. We think they're not being adequately challenged. I'm always like, okay, well, let's just sort of wait and see. Maybe that's true, but maybe it's the fact that so-and-so is bored because they're having trouble focusing, or maybe they say they're bored, but actually there's something hard. I mean, bored is language that is really um, flexible. I think kids use that for things. And when they say something's boring, sometimes it means it's hard and they've sort of disengaged from it. And so I think that can be deceptive, right? Um, I I guess um, I'm not an expert on giftedness, but what I do, um, I guess the, I know it, it alludes primarily to intellectual and academic talent, right? And I guess I, the only one thing I, I feel a little reluctant about is how it doesn't recognize other areas of giftedness. I mean, uh, someone can be gifted when it comes to their social skills or their athleticism or their entrepreneurial, like so many ki- parents will come in and say, well, my kids set up this business. And, you know, I'm always like, oh my gosh, that's so impressed, you know, and they're not being recognized as being quote unquote un- gifted. And, and yet they may actually have a more marketable skill going into adulthood. Yes. We don't you know? test for that in our office, right? Their artistic ability, their musical ability. Yeah, yeah. All those things. And that doesn't really seem to get, again, as I say, I'm not an expert, but that doesn't seem to get bundled under that label. And so it feels sort of restricted in a sense. So. I I would, for sure. When I hear the term gifted, I think academics, I guess, is is often what goes through my mind. Well, yeah. and- in our schools, so my kids go to um, public school in our local um, public school system, and they did, and so the how they deter- seem to determine giftedness is they did a standardized test in the fall of their second grade year. And that was sort of it. And then if you got above a certain score, they have a certain cutoff score, then the teacher would weigh in and say, oh, yeah, so-and-so seems capable of taking on additional sort of work load and this and that and just felt a little arbitrary so so you're sitting down and you do one standardized test I do appreciate the teacher input I mean that's helpful because that person at least knows the child although again it's full of the school year so they maybe don't know the child super well yet but it just felt just the designation feels kind of arbitrary as well and then you know 
Um, we tell these kids they're gifted or we uh, here you and, get special and work. And it's at second grade, they figure this out. And I have a cousin in a different state who they determined this in kindergarten. And you can imagine the ability of a child to be able to even sit through a standardized assessment at that age is going to vary very much from one individual to the next at such a young age. So um, is that even correct? I, I like, is that deter? It, are they finding all the individuals who would be appropriately eligible? No, and so often, I mean, sorry, we're like going on about this, but so I love often, it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Here for it. So stimulating thinking about it, but so often too, you know, we'll have um, parents come in and maybe they've wanted to enroll their kid in private school for preschool or something. So they've taken that admissions, the cognitive testing that the school has required. And so they come in with you and they have this cognitive testing from when their kid was three that has these above the 99th percentile scores. And now their kid is 10 and maybe the scores are now a little above average, but not that high. And parents are just naturally, what's going on here? Why Why are these scores lower? What is it something wrong with the testing? Has something happened to my kid? Is the school not doing their job, et cetera? And, you know, you just have to sort of say, well, um, A, there's just natural statistical variation, uh, you know, uh, uh, things go to the mean. Uh, a and B, when your kid was three, it was much easier to get a higher score because there was no real sort of abstract or there was no real abstract reasoning demand. It was more sort of gathering a lot of it was gathering knowledge, right? Like their vocabulary and things like that, which is a lot to do with how they were brought up and, you know, how much they were read to and it's just things to do with parents, right? And so- um, Which that, also biases yeah. things, yeah. right? Then you have a cultural bias, a racial bias. I, I know you've already talked about this in your previous podcasts and, and discussion, but the testing itself can be problematic at these different- I've- administered the testing in an elementary setting before and children that were getting modifications throughout the school year for their ADHD, separate, mm-hmm. um, separate setting for testing and just placement in the room, which matters for these mm-hmm. kids. Cause they've been doing that all year. They didn't get that when mm-hmm. the test was administered. And I just thought how unfair, right. you know, that's yeah. just, now you're missing a whole group of individuals who would benefit from. Well, and then when it comes to the teacher, like you said, that gets the, yeah, push them on or not nah, keep them back. A lot of times children who are gifted don't necessarily the asynchronous development. They're not behavior. I, I can't say the word. They're not yeah. behaving the way that a teacher would want them to. And so they get that, you know, the yeah. night. Absolutely. Yeah. It's dramatic. It feels, I I mean, not entirely arbitrary, but a little arbitrary and and limiting again, in terms of what the term refers to. But then at the same time, that test does identify some kids and, you know, highlights certain thinkers that you wouldn't, that you might not have picked up on in your regular school day. So not a perfect system. No, no, it is not. Well, thank you both so much. This was such a treat to get to talk to you. Um, So if our listeners do want to get in touch with either of you, what is the best way to reach you? I think if if Instagram would be easy way to to find us and reach us at neuropsych mom docs. Um, And we both work at the same private practice in Maryland. If people do want to get in touch, they could reach out to our our group, um, um, which is the Stixrude group, S-T-I-X-R-U-D. Um, unless, Katya, you have anything else? Nope. I did open an email address for which can also be used 
It's I had to do it in order to get my Amazon author account set up. Yeah. <laughs> It's my regular email address, so annoying. And Goodreads as well. Oh my gosh, it's terrible. So I set up an email address. It's different.thinkers with an S dot books at gmail.com. And I know that book spit is annoying, but the other good ones were taken. So so that's another, and that'll come to me and then I can forward to Yael as appropriate. Yeah. I will add all of that into the show notes. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you guys so much. Have Thank a you. good one. Bye-bye. Bye. And there you have it. We truly appreciate your time spent with us today. If you enjoyed this episode of They'll Be Fine, please consider sharing your thoughts. Leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible would mean the world to us, but we understand if it feels like a lot. Even a quick five-star rating or sharing this episode on your own social media can make a significant impact. Your support helps us reach more families and educators who are navigating and advocating for their gifted loved ones. We hope you'll join us on our next episode as we sit down with another amazing stakeholder in the gifted community. Until then, take care.